Well, you can imagine as a baby pastor who's been here for about a minute how excited I was to get this text for Sunday morning. <laughs> Heavy stuff. Um, so let's just pray together. <laughs> Dear God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the way that you would lead us on the road you've called us to go? And would our work together as friends and family and loved ones here in this community support and bolster this endeavor in one another? Would you prevent us from hindering one another in the hard road that you've called us to? In your name, amen. So last week, our congregation had a meeting after church to uh, discuss some of the findings of a feasibility report. And we were gathering together to discern whether we might make some structural updates to the basement of our building to better meet the needs of our community here and also meet the needs of our community here in Lancaster. And uh, during that meeting, we learned about a few things. We learned about a wish list that the Fellowship Commission had to, you know, have heaters for our potluck dishes and for our community meals on Monday. We learned about appliance updates that we might have to kind of decrease our ecological footprint and get rid of some of the styrofoam and plasticware that we use a lot. Uh, we also talked about kind of reorganizing the space so that we could accommodate more people potentially. Then Nurture got up and kind of shared, you know, gosh, well, we want to also honor the children in our midst and make sure that we have some space that's um, continuous and space that feels like theirs so that they can come and learn about Jesus together. And then the property commission got up and they were like, well, you know, while we were doing this, we found some maintenance issues that are just going to require some attention regardless of what we do in the basement. And uh, we were faced with some hard questions. And uh, what we found was that, you know, adjusting one thing might exacerbate a limitation somewhere else. And what we were doing in that meeting was just the very first steps of counting up the cost of this initiative. And it strikes me that, you know, that is kind of what Jesus is asking us to do in our text this morning. He's asking us just to make some hard considerations about the path that we choose forward. And, you know, in these questions, we want to think about how our choices are going to affect us pragmatically, economically, relationally. Now I want to just give some context to kind of where this text sits. So last week, Leah Schrock read to us uh, from the first half of Luke 14. Um, and in that passage, Jesus is sitting and having a meal with some Pharisees. And uh, as is kind of typical of Jesus, it's not too long before he starts to ruffle some of their feathers. Um, and he starts to kind of question their notions about who is going to be exalted 
in the kingdom of God and who is going to be humbled. And then after he starts to prod them there, he tells a parable about a man who hosts a banquet. And he invites all of these prominent people to come to his banquet. And these prominent people are kind of distracted with a lot of other things. And they have excuses as to why they can't make it. And so the man goes back and he talks to his servant and he says, you know, why don't you go out and invite the poor, invite people who are disabled, invite the laborers that are out on the streets and out in the countryside and they can come to the banquet instead. And then in verse 24, Jesus ends the parable by saying, I tell you not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. And, and then he leaves the dinner. And uh, if you're like me, I kind of really dig the spicy dinner guest Jesus. Anybody else feel that way? Like, I love it when Jesus gets invited to dinner and he shows up and he just starts laying it out for his hosts. These prominent, wealthy people, these people with status, these religious leaders who think they know it all, and he starts to challenge their assumptions. He starts to remind them of what's really important. You know, this is the grassroots Jesus. This is... The Jesus that's not in league with the establishment. This is the Jesus of the people, right? And so the people start kind of noticing Jesus. And they start following Jesus. And so when Jesus leaves this dinner party and he sets off on the road to Jerusalem, crowds of people start gathering around him. And in fact, it says that they start traveling with them. So this isn't just like... We show up for like a speaker event and then we go home, right? Like these people are like Jesus roadies, right? Like they're following him around. And what Jesus does next is really unsettling, right? So Jesus sees this crowd of people and he feels compelled to talk to them, to buckle down and have some real talk. And uh, one commentator said it best when it says, you know, some passages of uh, scripture are intended to comfort the disturbed. This text is intended to disturb the comfortable. And uh, I have to confess, I read it and I felt a little disturbed because I really like my comfort. But in our scripture reading, Jesus is going to prompt us to make some disturbing considerations. And it's hard. So in this text, Jesus has some questions for his followers to consider about whether they're really ready to walk this road with him. Because at this point in our text, Jesus isn't wandering around aimlessly. He's not on a speaking tour right? He's not just wandering around doing some ministry. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, and he knows it's his last trip. And I think that's really important for us to understand in the context of this passage. 
So throughout the next few chapters of Luke, Jesus is going to be teaching and healing on the road, and he's doing it all the while knowingly taking step after step toward his own execution. So when Jesus sees these crowds start to gather, he turns to them and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And if any of you know anything about leadership, this really isn't the way to start out, <laughs> right? This isn't a message that is attractive. And I found myself reading this text and thinking, who among us can do that? Now, I do want to be really clear that, you know, Jesus isn't talking about being really hostile to your mom and dad or to your wife or husband. You know, he's not talking about being aggressive or what's probably more likely to be among us being passive aggressive, right? He's not talking about being angry toward one another. But this emphatic word lets us know that aligning ourselves with Jesus is going to radically confront our priorities. You know, this call goes against our culture's message about how we prioritize our relationships. And we can expect that the way of Christ is going to create some conflict. And so Jesus is seriously asking, are you ready for this? Am I ready for this? Am I ready to prioritize the demands of discipleship over the demands of my wife? Am I ready to prioritize obedience to God over obedience to my parents? The fellowship with followers to the follies of friendship? Am I ready to lose my life? Disturbing considerations. And then he goes on. <laughs> he doesn't even stop there. And says, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now for listeners in the US in the 21st century, this notion of carrying the cross can easily feel like a distant metaphor, right? It can almost seem a little poetic. Now let's all take up our proverbial crosses and follow Jesus. But to Jesus' followers living under Roman rule, to the crowd that he's talking to, it wouldn't probably have landed the same, right? These are people who were living under the occupation of a violent empire, and they were familiar with the forms of torture and execution that were happening in their midst. Right? So Jesus wasn't the first person who was crucified, and he sure wasn't the last. So the statement isn't just landing on his listeners as poetic metaphor. This would have stopped them dead in their tracks. 
because Jesus was informing them that this road was going to cost them their safety. It was very going, very likely going to cost them some physical comfort. And so this week I've been really wrestling with this idea of kind of the proverbial cross and how I've thought about this in my own life. Um, and I wonder if sometimes it can even muddy the waters of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. If it can function as a distraction from the calling that Jesus is really offering to us. So when I was in middle school, my parents took me to New York to see a Broadway show for my birthday. And this was like big stuff. This was my life's dream. And we spent the day in New York and we were wandering around and I noticed this man who was wandering the streets of New York City and he was carrying a, a life-size wooden cross around with him everywhere he went. And I had noticed him but you know, if anyone's ever been to Times Square, like people engaging in some eccentric behavior is kind of like a dime a dozen. Um, people are doing really interesting things all over the place in Times Square. And so I thought he was just one of the many. And imagine my surprise when all dressed up in my best, holding my ticket, I'm standing in the queue getting ready to give the usher my ticket, and the person in front of me is none other than the man with the cross. Standing there, shouldered cross on one side and Phantom of the Opera ticket on the other. <laughs> and uh, we start to move up the queue and he gets to the front of the line and he starts to engage with the usher who tries to very kindly explain to this man that he can't bring his wooden cross into the theater with him because it's a very immersive experience and um, there's not really a place for him to put it. So the man is a little disgruntled by this and, uh, and they start to argue for a few minutes and then uh, eventually the man says, well, wait, I will, I'll buy a seat, I'll pay, I'll buy another ticket. And then the usher is saying, well, sir, I'm sorry, but like, other people have paid for these tickets and they wouldn't to see the show, not the back of your very large obstructive cross. And finally, after much more disagreement about this situation, the man just kind of leaves and takes his cross with him. I imagine this man reading this passage and in what he perceived to be prophetic witness, crafting himself his own wooden cross to carry around, arguing with business owner after business owner, policeman after policeman all along the way, his proverbial cross. For many of us in the church, we've taken it more figuratively than literally. What I understood my proverbial cross to be as a young Christian was my orientation. And I fully believed that what qualified and quantified my commitment to God was whether or not I could suppress or even change that orientation. And the shame surrounding my inability to change that orientation consumed my days. 
it took up most of my energy and mind space. But hey, that was just my cross to bear. And we all have things like that in our life, right? Some of the daily hardships that just come to us by being alive and the way it sits in our society or the way it sits in our body, the way it sits in our relationships, women after women in the church being told that their abusive relationships that they're stuck in is just their cross to bear. But I wonder if that really has anything to do with what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Because when Jesus invites the crowd to carry their cross on the road to Jerusalem with him, I wonder if he's really asking them to accept random suffering of life. Because when we look at the suffering of Jesus and what he submits himself to, to the ostracization and the conflict and a nomadic lifestyle, it isn't just hard things that happen, you know, that life happens to throw his way, right? It's an intentional, radical solidarity with the human condition, isn't it? So when Jesus is calling his fathers to carry, followers to carry their cross, might he just be calling them potentially into the dangerous work of the liberation of humanity and the cultivation of a new kingdom? Because he's bearing his cross for love. Love is hard. It costs something. And he wants to make sure that we know it. And so he gives us these, these analogies. He says, you know, you're not going to go out and build a tower and not think about whether you can actually afford to complete it or not. Or you're not going to go to war with a few soldiers up against a lot of soldiers and not kind of consider what you might stand to lose. And he asks them that rhetorical question because the answer is, of course, of course we would think about that. Right? Of course we would think about whether we can afford the tower. Of course we would think about whether we could actually win a war. And he says, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. Everything? What is everything? That could be anything. Anything that functions to distract us from this work of discipleship, this work of liberation, the work of love. So you see, when Jesus turned and saw the crowd following, he was not impressed at his own success. You know, if you think about like a political leader or religious leader turning and giving this as the speech, we would think like, oh my gosh, you need a PR person really, really bad. It's like a counter pep talk, right? It's really strange. And it doesn't make sense to us. What leader would say that? I mean, this guy is going to lose people here. And he knows it. But in Tom Wright's book, Luke for Everyone, he suggests this. 
Suppose instead of a political leader or a politician, a religious leader, we think of the leader of a great expedition, forging a way through dangerous mountain passes to bring urgent aid. If you want to come any further, the leader says, you have to leave your packs behind. From here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff. Perhaps he's saying, if you're going to travel this road with me, I want to make sure you're ready for the trip because it's not a vacation. The famous singer Rich Mullins used to say that Jesus asks his disciples to give everything to the poor because there are a lot of people coming to the banquet and God doesn't want to deal with all the luggage. So if any of you are visual people and you're feeling confused about why there's a cow on the front of your bulletin this morning, it's a valid question. Um, and I invite you to take a look at your bulletin. Tradition, traditional Christian iconography depicts the Gospel of Matthew as a mortal, Mark as a lion, John as an eagle, and Luke as an ox. And scholars suggest that the ox communicates something distinctive about Luke's gospel. Jesus, like the ox, carries the burdens of humanity. Luke's gospel, traditionally known as the gospel for the marginalized. And Luke knows that he's not speaking necessarily to the marginalized in this text. Uh, scholarship shows that he is speaking fairly generally to a diverse group, but that there's a particular emphasis that Luke places in speaking directly to people who have some means, who have some status, who have some wealth. And I love that image as we consider this passage, this business of being the church. This is going to be work. There's some labor involved. We got to pick up some weight. So then we're invited to consider what might we need to carry if this cross is about the unfolding of love in our midst. May God give us the strength, like the ox, to bear the load. Amen.